Thank you for inviting me here. I rarely get to be here. It's probably the second time or third time I've been here since, what, 2019 or something. So I got stolen by a shed, and, um, but I'm back. And also, that sort of fits the uh, message today. I feel like I'm a bit of a prodigal son, you know. <laughs> I've run away, and now I'm back. All right, I'm back to speak. So thank you for having me. We'll just quickly pray, sort of forget about everything else, and we'll, we'll smash it. Dear Father, um, I just thank you for this amazing time, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you speak through me into all our hearts, Father, um, that um, we're receptive to what you have to say to us, that um, it doesn't go from one ear to the other, but it actually um, plants a seed in our heart, Father. In your name, amen. All right. So today's going to be pretty fun and, well, not fun, but it's going to be chill and it's going to be something that you've all heard of, or maybe you haven't. Um, it's going to be about the prodigal son. And what we're going to do is we're going to do a sort of analysis. We're going to go through it and we're going to read it together. So I'll get you to all get your phones, your Bibles, whatever it is, um, out and read with me. Um, and we're going to just stop every now and then. And I'm going to talk through some points um, and sort of look at what did I sort of learn from this little passage part. And we're going to continue. Okay, so read along with me so that it's there in front of you. Um, or if you have someone next to you to read along with, okay? So we're going to start off with looking at the context of the story. And then we're going to break it down from when he actually, Jesus starts speaking about this, this parable. And then we're going to look at what are some things we can reflect on from what we've read. And what, what sort of implications does it have for our lives, alright? So that's the structure today. Okay, so it's in Luke chapter 15. So if you want to pull that up, or if you're already a Bible whiz, you probably already got it up. And we're going to start from verse 1. Right? There's a little part at the start of it that gives us the context, and then we're going to skip to the parable. Okay. So what is the context of the story? It says, um, so Jesus is around, and there's people around him. There's also some Pharisees around him too. And it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Right? So I'm just going to stop there immediately. That's the only context we get, right? And what can we learn just from that small little two verses? And I always just read that and I sort of skip past it and we get to the story. But there's something we can learn from this, right? Because Jesus tells the story and tells three stories actually because of this, right? Because of this one encounter. What can we learn from this context, right? The first thing I noticed was there are some Pharisees here who are annoyed and they're saying, Jesus, he receives sinners and eats with them. And they're annoyed about that, right? First thing I noticed is that there's a bit of a separation, right? From the word sinners and the Pharisees, right? Where they're standing there and they're telling Jesus, he receives sinners. Sinners. That's not us. That's them. Right? And ultimately, when we look at that, there's already instantly something wrong. Right? Where there's someone now standing there in front of Jesus and saying, these guys are sinners. And that implies that I'm not. Right? And that's something we can look at and consider. Right? Um, their title of, what, of who Jesus was was completely correct. Right? He receives sinners and he eats, um, eats with them, right? 
There's something that Charles Spurgeon said, and there's going to be a lot of Charles Spurgeon because I love that guy, and I used to be in Spurgeon House, and it's a good house. Um, but he's a good man, and he said some amazing things, and it really struck me, right? He said this about this context. He said, The doctrine is not that Christ receiveth everybody, but that he receiveth sinners. Right? And I read that, and I was like, what is this thing on about? What do you mean Christ doesn't receive everybody? He's not exclusive, you know, he loves everybody. Doesn't make sense. And then you also think about it, isn't everybody a sinner? So the sentence actually doesn't make sense. Right? But I think what he's trying to say is Christ is not here for the self-righteous. Right? It's up to you to decide, are you going to actually realize I am a sinner and I'm broken, so I'm going to come to Christ. And that's who he came for. Right? But the one who's self-righteous, the Pharisees who have disconnected themselves from sinners, that label they've put on, well, they're never going to really come to Christ they're just not because they're self-righteous. You come to Christ when you notice, hey, I'm broken. I'm going to come to Christ. And that's something, it sounds like, well, these Pharisees are rats or whatever. But that's something that I feel we struggle with all the time, right? And I know I do. You might see someone, you know, walking, you know, you're, you're going about your day. And there are little thoughts, judgmental thoughts that you might have in your mind. That's a sinner. Or you're at a party. Those people I'm not going to associate with. I'm a good Christian. I'm going to church tonight. What are you doing? Going party? Get away, right? Those are the sinners. And we start to feel a bit self-righteous. And Jesus instantly wants to shut that down. And he says, nope, listen to this story, right? So that's the first thing I sort of learned from this. And the encouragement I get from it is that we feel when we've sinned and gone astray that now we cannot come to God. But it's sort of the opposite, Right? Where it's actually, hey, you've realized in a moment that you're so far from God. You're a sinner and you're broken. And it's in that moment where you should be running straight back, right? But I know, I'm just going to speak personally, and it probably applies to you all, that when you're in that dark place, right, in the valleys, you start to think, oh, I'm not worthy then. I can't. I can't come to God because I'm not a good Christian. I've done some messed up things, right? But what did we just learn? That Jesus came for the sinner, not for the one who thinks, I'm good, I'm ticking all the boxes, and I'm coming to church, I'm alright. That's not who he came for. So that's the first thing we learn, and we haven't even started the story. Great, okay. So we're going to skip now. Actually, we're not going to skip. There's an amazing uh, sort of text that um, I read. That's also from Charles, Charles Spurgeon. So he said, If he had wanted the companionship of saints, he might have stopped in heaven. Well, there were many there. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were with him there in glory. But he wanted sinners. He had a thirst after perishing sinners. He wanted to make them trophies of his grace. He wanted black souls to wash them white. He wanted dead souls to make them alive. And that just highlights that point. So we don't want, Jesus hears this, he notices this idea that you know, there are sinners and the Pharisees are all self-righteous and whatever. So he tells this story. So we're going to skip down if you're reading with me. We'll go to verse 11. Right? And he starts this story about the famous prodigal son that we probably all learnt about in Sunday school. Or maybe you've never heard this story before. Right? So this is what it says. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, 
Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Okay, interesting. Now, some things that pop out to me when I read that, or some things to understand. Firstly, we probably all know inheritance is usually something you get when your parents pass away, right? When, you know, they're gone, and you receive their will, and you, know, you receive their inheritance. So this guy has gone up, right? And he's gone to his father, and he's basically just spat in his face and said, I wish that you were dead. That's what he said, right? It's not just, hey, I want some inheritance, and he goes off. He, he goes to his father, and he tells his dad, I wish that you were dead. Give me my stuff, right? That's where we start the story. Pretty, pretty harsh, right? But something I also see, you can already see from the beginning the father's love for this child. Why? He's showing um, and allowing his rebellion and giving him this request, right? He's giving him this request. He said, you, you just spat in my face and said, I wish you were dead. Okay, here's your inheritance, right? And he gives it to him. So it's like, wait, what? And maybe we know a little bit about what's going to happen in the future. So we, we realize, hey, why would the father let him just go screw up his life and sort of squander all these resources, right? But something I learned, a lesson from this, and we'll sort of read and we'll, I'll try to give a lesson from each verse as we go. But the lesson I learned from this part is that God listens to our prayers, but it actually doesn't always mean it's, what, it's what's best for us in that moment, right? He, he listens and he cares and he loves, just like when the Israelites asked for a king. It wasn't what's best for them. They said, well, so be it. And what's going to happen from there? There's going to be some, some sort of big lesson that they're going to learn in the end. And they're going to learn something about themselves, about God in that moment through that suffering, where they say, give me my inheritance. And he says, okay, so be it. And you go, and we, you know how the Israelites were with their kings, and they learn that God is their true king. So that's something I learned from that little portion, okay? I'm going to continue. So from verse 13 now. So not many days later, so pretty soon, the younger son gathered all he had, and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Right? We'll stop there. So pretty intense, right? So he's gone out, he's going to live his life and have fun. And you know, do whatever he pleases. Sounds pretty awesome. Spends everything, and then suddenly circumstances change. He's already in the bad spot, and there's a famine, and he's in need. He's in big need. Right? So firstly I want to highlight something. Something I actually didn't entirely know what this word meant. I thought it meant like lost or something because we hear the prodigal son. I thought it meant the lost son or the faraway son who came back and blah, blah, blah. Right? But prodigal means spending money or using resources freely and recklessly or wastefully extravagant. Right? That's what the prodigal son means. Right? He was wastefully extravagant. Right? And what I learned from that is so he, he squandered what was waste. Um, 
he squandered and was wasteful of the resources that his father provided him, right? That's a big deal here, right? I know in the context of the story, we read it, and I remember in Sunday school, you know, Tante Damao would give like a story and she'll give like examples, like he had some coke and some food and he went to parties. I totally remember that and it was interesting, right? But the way I see it now, there are resources in your life and there are opportunities, there are careers, friendships, family members, whatever it is, that God has put, and those things are special, and they're resources, and they're sort of the inheritance that God has given us, right? So it's our job then, not to squander that, right? That we have been given opportunities, and we're called to take those opportunities and pray about them, not squander that, right? We've been given resources, we've been given money. Money is a great thing. You know, you work for money, you know, you get an awesome job, and it's a great thing. But how are we going to use that money, right? These are resources that think to yourself, how will I use these or will I actually be a prodigal son and will I squander these resources, right? So that's something I learned from that. Um, so are you using these resources for God's glory, giving generous, generously, using your talents, you know, being a good friend? Is it taking opportunities? Um, being a light in your workplace or your career, that's an opportunity for you. Or are you squandering that opportunity with those three people that you'll never meet again? Will you squander that or will you actually use that, right? So we continue and what else happened in this little passage we read? So this man went, not this man, this son, went from living with his father in wealth, eating amazing food, you know, being in a loving community, to longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, right? How can that even happen? Like, you go from royalty, and now you're in a position where you're actually, like, you see pigs eating, and you're like, I wish I could eat that, right? Do you know how low you have to be to get to that state? Like, I've ne- I know I've probably never been in a state like that, but this is the lot, like, this is horrible, right? So God's clearly giving us a message here. This guy is in the worst condition of his life, right? He wants to be fed with the pigs. Now... It's crazy, and it sort of looks at what you value in certain sort of times, right? And I want to tell a story that I heard um, that sort of highlights this change from, you know, living this, you know, life full of love and, and you know, resources and food to longing for the food that pigs eat, right? So there was a story um, of a man, he had diamonds in a truck, right? He, and he was going over a desert, and he's going to sell these diamonds, right? So he's going to make a lot of money, good business, diamonds are precious, right? He's got a whole truck full of them, right? And he's in the desert, right? And then, just like in this story, you know, there's a, maybe a, a circumstance. Maybe his, his truck ran out of fuel. And now he's stuck in the desert, right? Then he's there for one week, no water. He's struggling. He's in the lowest time of his life, right? He needs to survive. And he sees one guy just driving across. And he's like, help, do some help. And the guy comes over. And he sees, you know, he's got like a nice label on his truck, like diamonds and stuff. And, and the guy's like, oh, interesting. So he tells him, I'll give you a bottle of water. You know, like the British bottle of water. I'll give you a bottle of water. And you give me the truck of diamonds, Right? And the guy says, take it, 
Take the diamonds. I don't care about the diamonds. I need water, right? Something that's free and accessible everywhere. In that moment, though, that's what he needed, right? In that dire situation. And there are times in our lives we end up in these dire situations. And it's going to be up to now what is of most importance and most value to you. That's what matters in those moments, right? It's no longer those diamonds. The water was worth more, right? So think to yourself in those situations. What, what will you be seeking um, and sort of what will give you life? And in the situation, we see the prodigal son. He comes down to a situation like this as if his truck ran out of fuel in the desert and he wants to eat with the pigs, right? So, yeah, it's tough, right? He's in a terrible situation. So the lesson that I sort of put here which I sort of iterated before. At our lowest point, there may be certain circumstances, whether it's a family breakdown, you know, work is not going well, or you're stressed at work, you're not being able to support yourself or family financially, you don't even know maybe at one point how to get dinner on the table tomorrow, right? You're in these tough moments, right? In those moments, you may find yourself seeking something to fill that hole, which will never actually fill that hole. There's only one thing, right? Obviously, if this guy started eating the pig's food, that probably won't do much anyway. There's no nutrients. Like, he's, he's not going to live off pig's food. Right? There's going to be something that actually satisfies in those moments. And that's God, right? So, we'll continue the story. We go from verse 17. So, he wants to eat with the pigs and is really in his lowest point of life. It says this, but then, but when he came to himself, so he had, a, he had a bit of a light bulb moment or just like a moment of seeing himself, you know, desiring something so just awful. He has a moment and he says, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. So he just, he just had a little moment. And he's now reciting his script. Right? He's like, what am I going to say? You know, I need to get back to my father's kingdom. He realizes. He has a moment, which is important. He has a moment where he says, I know now the only thing I need is to go back where my dad is, right? And he has that moment. He starts reciting what he's going to say, right? So I give this guy a lot of credit. That's actually a very hard step and an important step where he's in the lowest moment of his life and he doesn't now just continue seeking these things, but he actually sits down and he says, I need to get back to my father. And that's something that we probably struggle with, right? To actually... Have some reflection in your own time. It won't be as obvious as you're in a pig's den and you want to eat the pig's food. But there's times in your life when you're going to be struggling and you'll probably just keep going with the flow. But you have to actually sit back, reflect on yourself and say, wait a second, maybe I actually need to come back to my father, right? But it doesn't end there, right? The important part. Because I know, I'm just going to speak again personally, that when I'm in those positions and I'm like, man, because I know everything up here. So I say, you're man... Like, life's not good. I'm not, you know, living the life I want to be living. I'm, I'm straying away. You know, this is not good. I'm in sin right now. I'm living by my flesh. 
And I have that thought, like, I need to be better. You know, I've got to read my Bible tomorrow morning, maybe, and I've got to pray, and I've just got to be better, right? And I go the next day, and the same thing happens, right? What happens with this guy, who is an awesome son, is he, at the end, in verse 20, says, and he arose and came to his father, right? He had the moment, he recited the script, and then he actually got up, and he said, I'm going to go back, right? And that part, we always skip over and just continue the story, but that is extremely important, the action part. There's the recognition, and then there's the action. I'm actually going to now take a step towards my father, and I'm going to repent. And I want to come back. And I'm going to come back as well, right? So that's something I think that was really um, sort of stood out to me. Um, in that same text as well, there's a part um, where he says, how many of my father's servants, right? So right now in his script, we're going to analyze the script a bit. He says, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? And he keeps going, he says, I will arise, go to my father, I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Now, at this point, he's like, I just want to be a servant. Right? I just want to at least be in the environment. Like, I just want to at least, you know, come back to church. Or I just want to be in that environment and I want to be a servant. Please, at least just a servant. Because they still got some good food and they get fed well and they have a nice place to sleep. Right? I just want to be a servant. He didn't believe that he could come back and still be a son. Right? He thought, that's it. I've ruined everything. I can't still be a son to my father. I just want to be a servant at least. Right? And he recites the prayer in his head. And actually sort of reminds me of Elijah in his darkest moments. When he's sort of reciting this script um, to God. And then God asks him again, why are you here? And he just says the same thing back. It's a very funny sort of um, analogy. But we continue. So he thinks, I can't be a son. Right? I just want to be a servant. So from verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. We've heard this before. He was, he's reciting it back now. He's, he's getting the practice in. But it, he just cut off. Right? But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. There's a lot. There's a lot to go through here. And the first thing that I notice, which shows the love of the father in this situation, and it's a bit funny as well, where, as I mentioned before, there's this recited prayer that he had, right? And he came to his father and he started to recite this prayer. But if you notice, one of the lines is missing. Why, right? The father didn't even let him finish, right? He, he didn't let him finish a sentence. He's like, I don't care what you have to say. That's it. Like, you're back. Just shush. Just stop talking. And servants, bring all your things and come over. And now you're back, right? That's the love of the father. When I think of that, God is very 
I feel like when Jesus tells these stories, he uses these pictures because we understand them. And just think in your head about you're running to someone, you've done something wrong, you're running to your father or maybe a friend you haven't seen in a while. And you're telling him like, hey man, I'm so sorry I did this well. And you start, you've got this whole speech prepared for him and he just stops you halfway and he's like, bro, I don't care. Just whatever. You're back. And he's happy. And the amount of love you would feel in that moment is just insane, right? That's a small thing that we miss and I, I just see it and I say, that is the love of the Father. You come back, you start to recite and sit down in this really you know, eloquent prayer and he just says, don't worry about that, right? So, what else did we learn from this little part? The prodigal son took the first step to come back and then the father saw him while he was a long way off, right? So the first thing... I notice, just as we're, as we're sort of reading the story, just imagine the situation, right? So he's taking the steps to come back. The father saw him while he was a while off. What was the father doing then? At that moment, the father must have been already outside looking, right? If he was occupied in the kitchen or like telling the servants what to do, then, you know, his, his son would just come to the door, knock, and then he opens the door, right? But his father was actively looking. He was like, where's my son? And he was looking for him, right? And I want you to now just picture that analogy with you and God, right? Where there's times that you're astray and you think, I can't come back to, to God. I can't pray and I can't, I can't sort of sit at his feet. But think about this story and the analogy where Jesus is just sitting up there and is, is, is watching you, right? From afar. And he's ready to, to sort of run to you. And he doesn't just walk, right? He runs back to him. Charles Spurgeon says this about it. He says, Before the kisses of love were given, this young man was on his way to his father, but he would not have reached him unless his father had come the major part of the way. When you give God an inch, he will give you an L. If you come a little way to him, when you are yet a great way off, he will run to meet you. I do not know that the prodigal son even saw his father, but his father saw him. The eyes of mercy are quicker than the eyes of repentance. Even the eyes of our faith is dim compared to the eye of God's love. He sees a sinner long before a sinner sees him. Right? And that, to me, is just shocking. Right? Before you even notice that you're a sinner, he's watching and he sees you. Right? The eyes of mercy are quicker than the eyes of repentance. He's more quick to show mercy to you than you are to go to him and say, I'm sorry, right? It doesn't even make sense, right? Like, you've got to wait for the apology first. He's more quick to bring you in than you are to apologize. So the encouragement to me when I read that is God sees our sinful heart before you even see it and runs to you. He doesn't walk or waits for you to come, right? You just have to take the first step. That's the only thing that was important here. The prodigal son had one job this whole time. To realise, wait a minute, this is not alright. And just to take one step to head to his father. And then his father did the whole rest. He ran the whole way. So, what else? This whole thing we were talking about before, where he just wanted to be a servant. He didn't want to be a son. Right? He didn't think he could be a son, sorry. So he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And what does the father do? He doesn't care, right? He comes to him. He puts on the best robe 
and a signet ring, right? Sort of a ring that is signifying, hey, you're part of the family, right? And he puts it right on him. And that's only something you'd be given um, as a son. The servants probably wouldn't have that, right? And straight away he says, welcome back, right? Something I want to touch on. His identity as the father's son was not lost at all and not earned back either, right? He never was not the father's son when he was with the pigs, right? Remember your identity and who you are, and that doesn't change in your circumstances, right? Like, if you think about it, like, um, let's just say, like, Dave and Esther, for example. They, imagine Esther just goes off and, like, does some naughty stuff and, like, smacks Elijah or something, and, you know, it's just really bad and naughty, right? Now imagine she came back to David and she thought, oh, I'm not David's son anymore. I mean, I'm sorry, not David's daughter anymore, right? Or David, actually, the bigger part of it, David saw Esther and said, you're not my daughter anymore, right? That doesn't, like, we don't even register that as a response in our human world, right? No one, no father's going to do that. Even the worst father in the world would probably still... Uh, debatable, but they'll probably still be, you know, you know, responsive to their son or daughter when they come back. Even the worst, right? So why then, and I fall into this all the time, why then, when we're struggling, do we go, ooh, I can't be a son still? I can't be a daughter to God? I'm not part of God's family? I'm too bad. I have to earn that, you know? I've done some bad stuff this week, so I need to get my way back into God's family. It doesn't work like that. Just like how Esther was still David's daughter, right? And that's something, when you have that mentality, and it's hard. I know it's hard because when you're in the depths and you're struggling, you don't want to have that mentality. It's too good to be true. But that is the truth, right? That's who you are, and it doesn't change by your circumstances. And as it says, For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. It doesn't say, My son became a peasant, and now he's back to my son. No, he said his son was dead, or his son was lost, but he was still his son, right? So we go over to the last part, right? And we can still learn a little bit, because sometimes we skip this end, or we just say the story ends here, it was pretty nice, and we don't worry about the older brother. But there's actually something you can learn from the older brother, because it can apply to us as well, right? So in Luke... 15, 25 to 32. It says, Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. So his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, These many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, um, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So, a bit tough for the older brother, right? And when I read that, 
Um, I think that's honestly a valid point. Right? It's pretty unfair, and I'd probably feel the exact same in that situation. You know, if my brother went and like just I don't know took half my parents' money and then just I don't know bought weed or something, and then I just I'm just trying to find a crazy story. But if he did something that crazy, right? And he came back and decided he could step foot in my house, or my parents' house, I'd be like, what are you doing? And then if my dad was like, John's back, let's go, and we like had a big barbecue and stuff, I'd be fuming. I'd be like, what is going on? Like, I'm here in your house, chilling, not disobeying you. You didn't make me a party. Right? So it's really valid. But there's something that Jesus is trying to teach us here, right? Sometimes we can find ourselves in the brother's shoes, right? Um, judgmental of a sinner who's just receiving mercy, right? You know, I, I get asked the question by my mates, you know, sometimes, and they say, oh, if Hitler suddenly repented um, and I saw him in heaven, like, how is that fair? You know what I mean? I mean, that's, you know, makes sense to think something like that, right? It might not be Hitler, but someone that bullied you, maybe, or... You know, someone where you know at certain parties did something wrong, right? And we might feel this bitterness towards them if we see them, you know, being saved or coming to church and being in that environment of love where you feel, wait, you can't be here. You're an outcast. Like, you've done that. How can we sort of bring you in and celebrate you as well, right? It's a bitterness in our heart and it's the same feeling that the Pharisees had. That's why he touches on this. The older brother here, directly, Jesus is like, this, the prodigal son is the sinners that you're talking about, the sinners and the tax collectors? Well, the older brother, that's you guys. And he's talking to the Pharisees. And that can be us, right? And it's tough. Um, but, um, let me just see. So, for the salvation of others, we are called to rejoice and be happy and not react like the Pharisees, right? Um, the older brother, he basically speaks directly um, to the Pharisees, where he says, he says things that the Pharisees would say, right? He says, I have served you. I've never disobeyed your command. Sounds great, right? Um, but that sounds a bit odd. Like, I'd question that. I'd be like, bro, that's a bit sus. You're saying you've never disobeyed the command and you've served you. Sounds a bit like the context we were giving at the start of that self-righteousness, right? Where this older brother does not see himself as needing that love and you know, he does not see himself as a sinner at all. He's like, I'm living life. I've been with you this whole time. I haven't gone and done something crazy, right? And it's tough, right? And I will say it's tough because that's how I feel so many times, right? We find ourselves as the self-righteous brother, you know, ticking all the box, uh, boxes of you know, these religious sort of duties, you know, going to church, you know, we're all here today. You know, that's one thing, yep, I'm, I'm a good person. Um, whatever it is, right? And I used to see myself as this all the time. I used to go to school and we'd go to parties on the weekend. I'd go because, you know, I, you know, I wanted to spend time with my friends. And they'd all be drinking and, you know, smoking and doing drugs and whatever. And, you know, it's, it's not the best, obviously, to do those things. I wouldn't engage in it. And I'd go home and just think to myself, yeah, look at me. Like, I'm awesome. And I'm, like, the best Christian because I'm not doing that stuff. Well, it's good you're not doing that stuff, but that's actually not the heart that we're supposed to have, right? Because I'm just as broken as they are in my own way, right? Jesus came for the sinner, right? And it's important that we recognize that we're sinners. And we don't have those self-righteous moments and we say, 
You know, that, that's not me, right? So it's important to learn also from the older son. Um, and I read a commentary about this that's really powerful. Um, it says, There was a sense in which the older son was obedient, yet far from his father's heart. In this sense, he was a perfect illustration of the religious leaders who were angry that Jesus received tax collectors and sinners. His story reveals the possibility of living in the father's house and failing to understand the father's heart. Right? It's possible to be living in the father's house and being in this environment and being a Christian and, you know, and going through life, but not understanding actually the father's heart. And that's a bit scary to me. So that's sort of the, the story. It's a great story. And I just want to give you guys some questions to reflect on um, and things to remember as we sort of wrap it up and sort of just give a summary of what we spoke about. So just some questions to just reflect on in your life and reflect on it you know, as you go home and, and in your weeks. Um, do you struggle to realise you're broken and need Jesus sometimes? Do you find that sometimes as well you feel self-righteous and those around you are sinners and tax collectors? Do you struggle to take that step back towards God when you're living in sin, just like the prodigal son did? Do you forget that your identity as his son or daughter doesn't actually change, no matter your circumstances? Do you forget the Father's love to run and to kiss you and to clothe you in robes when you're lost? Do you forget about that love? Like the older brother, do you live in the father's house but don't know the father's heart? Right? So they're tough questions and I encourage you to just ponder about them. Um, and just remember these things, that God, God's heart is for the broken. You'll always be a precious child to him. He loves you as to even let you spit in his face and will still come running back to you. He doesn't shift his focus away, but he's on the lookout every second that you're gone. And the best part is you have one job to do in this whole story. To recognise when you're broken and to take that step back to him. And then he'll do the whole other side to it. And he'll run the whole other way. And he'll do that 1,000 times if he needs. So that was a bit of a summary. And I hope sort of you saw it in a different light. And you can take something away from this sort of in your weeks and whatever. We'll just wrap up with a prayer. Dear Lord, um, we just, you know, it's a shocking story. And we hear it all the time in Sunday school, or maybe it's our first time. But um, Lord, thank you for running back to us when we're lost. Thank you for being on the lookout and not sort of forgetting about us, but actually looking out and seeing us when we come back and running back to us. And not only running back to us, Father, but to still call us your sons and daughters, um, despite all the sort of messed up things that we do and the way that we live by our flesh, Father. So I just thank you for this story, the image that you gave us about the love you have for us, um, and that there's only one thing we have to do, and that's to recognise that we are broken and that we need you, Father. In your name, amen.